Domino, Domino, only spot a few blacks to hang out Domino, Domino, only spot a few blacks to hang out Hello everyone, I am your host, Robert Stevens, and this is the Black Work Experience Podcast. As you may know, I started this podcast because I was tired of being the only black male or one of the few black people at my organization. This can be crazy. I was constantly called upon to speak for the black experience or expected to do the emotional labor after blatantly racist things occurred. This is heavy and it left me feeling underappreciated and in need of a change. I began to ask my friends if they ever experienced being the one or the only few people of color at their job and the impact it had upon them. We discuss what it felt like to experience microaggressions and not have a friend or an ally to lean on. Balancing the thin line between needing your coins and not being tokenized is never easy. But guess what? You have us now, and we will always have your back. The Black Work Experience explores the intersection between race, class, and privilege in America and in the workforce. We tell the stories of those who paved and are currently paving the way. As people of color gain more institutional, political, and economic power, we often find ourselves surrounded by people who do not look like us, talk like us, or even think like us. This podcast discusses what it's like to walk in the shoes of those who feel alone. I fully recognize that not all Black people think alike. The stories we share on this podcast may seem foreign to you and your experience. However, a lot of Black people experience microaggressions daily, and we need an outlet. This is your outlet. You are not alone. I want to be clear. This podcast is for all people, but we focus heavily on Black people. I want you to know you're not the only one experiencing microaggressions, otherness, and potential loneliness at work. If you identify with majority culture, listen to the podcast. Think about how you can help your Black colleagues when your coworker talks over them, runs to the manager instead of having a difficult conversation, or calls them intimidating. Guess what time it is? You guessed it, it's mail time. We had a lot of submissions for mail time this week. We ask you to please, please, please keep them coming. You can send us your story via Instagram at BWEPpod, at Twitter at BWEPodcast, or email us at blackworkexperiencepod at gmail.com. Today's submission comes from someone who wants to remain anonymous, so we will respect that. When I was on staff at a fairly low-level position, I talked with other people of color in similar positions at my organization. We realized that we were all working 60 to 80 hours a week because that is how our managers and the organization expected us to be committed and perform. When I brought this up to my manager crying after pulling an all-nighter, which I regularly did, I was told that excellence was expected and I needed to figure out how to manage this problem. But she did not want to get in trouble for my overworking, so I need to figure out how to work less and prioritize my own work and time better. She never asked about it again. I think that this is one of the issues that we see a lot at at organizations where you have a lot of people of color um, in low-level staff positions doing the brunt of the work. 
And I want to I want to just encourage you. I know there are a lot of people who've been there. I've worked at organizations where that was the case. I just want to encourage you to prioritize yourself. The work will be there. If you pass away, they will hire someone, put your job description up the next week, the next day, sometimes the same day. So I'm going to tell you this. Prioritize yourself. Make sure you take care of yourself and make sure that you do what's best for you because these organizations don't love us. They don't love us. I want to get ready and transition. We have an amazing, an amazing guest today. I want to begin to introduce her. Her name is Lynette Barksdale. She's the Vice President of Diversity and Inclusion at Goldman Sachs. And I can't even begin. I, I have this long bio for her. She is amazing. I've known her for quite a few years. Um, I know she has 14 years of experience in the industry. She's a Northern Virginia native. Um, she's created an indelible footprint within the corporate realm. She's been able to leverage her passions and skill sets to create a diversified platform for people of color. And I know one thing, she has a penchant for diversity, career development, and that has allowed her to be a thought leader, but not just a thought leader, but a change agent throughout her career, her tenure, and she's worked tirelessly to close the diversity gap and make sure people of color um, have a place, a seat at the table. Now, she's a North Carolina State University graduate. Shout out to the Wolfpack. Shout out to the Wolfpack. First of all, I went to Winston-Salem State University, as you all know. So let me shout out Winston-Salem State. But I want to say Lynette is in her first year at Goldman Sachs, serving as the Vice President of Diversity and Inclusion. Prior to this role, Lynette served as the Head of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion for Google Cloud. She's a voice. She's a force to be reckoned with. Lynette, welcome to the podcast. Hello. Thank you so much for joining us. Hello, hello. It is so great to be here. Thank you for having me. Um, so I'm so excited to have you. Uh, you know, we've been friends for quite some time. Yes. yes. And man, I'm telling you, it's, a, it's amazing to have you on the podcast. So I want to jump right into it. Lynette Barksdale, tell us about yourself. Who is Lynette Barksdale? Yeah, you know, I, I'm so many things. And I think it's really important, as I think you said in the opening, that you know, we we know that that black people are not monolithic, right? Like we are, we are, we are so many different intersections, which I think is so beautiful. Um, I'm a daughter, I'm a, a child of God, I'm an aunt, I'm a friend, um, I'm a person who has you know, really tried to shape their career around supporting people who feel voiceless in many mm. ways, whether that be in education, working with kids um, who come from communities that have been, you know, systemically opp oppressed in different ways um, to people in the workplace who feel mm. like, you know, like, like this person who sent in the mail, right? Like who feel like they go to work, they don't get their concerns heard. And and those are the things that I've been fighting for. And I think it's looked like a bunch of different things in a bunch of different roles. Um, mm -hmm. And I think we'll talk a little bit about my career, but you know, I, I love to travel. So COVID is hard. Um, mm -hmm. You know, COVID is hard for many reasons, but let me tell you, my passport um, is, is hurting right now. Um, and, and, you know, I, I really do love to be a part of change. And that's mm -hmm. what's important to me is is to be a part of change, and and I love it. I love driving it, um, and and that's a little bit about me. Mm. Well, that is. Listen, y'all, you in for a treat today? I, 
like I said, I know Lynette. I see her on Instagram and I'm jealous because every time I look at Instagram, she's in another country. She's somewhere doing something. So this is like the her wealth of experience, her wealth of knowledge from different cultures. And I think basically how she's been able to drive change throughout different organizations is something that I'm excited to talk about today. So take us on a journey. You talked a little bit about your professional career. Take us on a journey. Um, explain to us what do you do and how did you get there? Yeah, so currently, um, like you said in my bio, I work at Goldman Sachs, um, you know, doing work in diversity and inclusion for our regional offices um, outside of New York. So it was a new role that Goldman hired for as they were purposefully thinking about kind of location strategy, where we put offices, how we, you know, put our different work divisions um, in places. And um, they they want it to be strategic. They want it to be proactive about thinking about diversity and inclusion instead of reactive. And mm -hmm. so I was hired into this role um, to one, it's a brand new role. So no one knew what this was going to look like, which, you know, that's exciting for me. Um, and, but two, I knew I would get to work with incredible people and an incredible leader that we have at Goldman, Erica Irish Brown, and under an incredible CEO. Um, you know, I, there's a lot we can talk about as we go on, but I think, you know, we have an incredible CEO, at da you know, in David, and I was thrilled to work in an industry that I had no experience in. And, and so um, I transitioned to Goldman Sachs a little bit over a year ago. Um, and prior to that, you know, I worked at, at Google uh, doing a couple of roles. And, and you know, I, I like to take people on that journey a little bit because I think it's important for people to know that there's no one path. Um, mm. I, I think every single role that I've had has led me to be able to, to operate and function in the current capacity and state that I'm in now. And so when I think about when I started at Google, I was in our staffing operation side of the house, right? Like mm. I, I was leading a staffing organization. Did I think that that was my calling? Probably not. Um, but it was an opportunity to work for a company that, again, I had no experience in tech. Like I knew very little about tech. I knew about tech, but, you know, you can tell me what a data center was and I actually knew or what, mm -hmm. you know, what an engineer does and the amount of code that they look out of and like, OK, sure. I just know things work. Um, and so, you know, starting in staffing operations and then shifting into our diversity and inclusion space. You know, even that was a journey, right? Like taking mm. on a temporary assignment um, as the head of Black community engagement as she was out on maternity leave, um, which gave me the six months, I would call the, the tornado of six months, right? Of like just a whirlwind of, of opportunities and, and things that I took on to then going to lead diversity, equity, and inclusion in some of our organizations. And I think that that, you know, that work and, and doing that at a large company such as Google was mm -hmm transformational in my leadership um, and, and also how you influence. Um, prior to that, I worked at Teach for America, um, which, you know, it, it, Teach for America is a place where I think you learn everything about yourself in the shortest amount of time, right? Mm -hmm. You are, it is, it is a bunch of incredibly smart young people running, running stuff. And, and you are learning and doing and executing at the same time. And, sure. um, you know, I had, had an incredible, you know, experience there, but a hard experience. I think we all, all did. And, that, you know, I think that is, that is one of the things that um, really helped shape my work ethic. And, and mm. to the point of the, the person who sent the mail, my boundaries, 
Mm. Because, you know, I had very few back then when I worked at Teach for America, but Hello. I'll tell you, I learned after. Um, and and <laughs> prior to that, I worked at Target for Target Corporation. I did human resources there. Um, and, and again, you know, Target was one of those places where a bunch of young kids just running million dollar, you know, companies. And, and it was it was just fascinating to be um you know, in that space, learning about protecting people, caring for people, developing people, the intersections of, you know, of income and wealth mm. And, and, mm. And, and, you know, in retail and how, how, you know, I think our system is really capitalizing on, on the different demographics that we have when it comes to you know, to to how much money people make. And I, I think it's really interesting. Um, mm. But that experience was incredible. It was the kickoff to my career. I also taught at the University of Maryland for a little bit of time. And, you know, I, I just, I really think, again, like it just shows the breadth and like there was no one journey, no one mm. journey for me. Um, but, but the journey I think has been definitely just so much fun. That's that's yeah. one way I can categorize it. So much you, fun. You said something, Lynette, that I wanted to expound upon. Yeah. Like, I feel like you were able to make this transition because you stepped into this leadership role at Google for six months while someone was mm -hmm. out on maternity leave. Was that a was that an option or like, you know, did you did you pursue that? Because it appears that like we find our passions and our next steps when we step out of our comfort zone. Right. Yeah. And as a person of color, as a black woman. Right. I think sometimes, you know, I, Full transparency, everyone knows I'm married to a black woman. I have three black young ladies, kids, you know. So, like, I understand how it can be so difficult to be both black and a woman, especially in the corporate space. Yeah. So, like, were you, did you seek that opportunity or was it given to you? How did you get there? Yeah, you know, it's really interesting. I, I don't think, let me be clear, I don't think anything is given to us in life. I think we Hello. have Come on. all of it. Come um, on now. I, you know, I, uh, so how it how it played out is that I was doing some work in the diversity space. I was that the global head of our Black um, Googlers network at that point in time. Um, I was connected to the diversity team just because I had been doing a lot of projects with them, a lot mm -hmm. of work with them. Um, and when the role came open, I interviewed for it. I had to interview, and and mm -hmm. you know, I was you know I was measured. My performance was measured against other candidates, um, but I did take the chance to apply and be willing. Mm -hmm to to I was to be rejected if I was not the person that they wanted for the role, right? And I think that's the risk um that you take. And also the risk of like, I had no idea what I was doing, right? Like she had set up, you know, a great footprint and plan, but it was a it was like the end of the year. It was, you know, we were rolling into a new year. There were a lot of things that I had to create and do on my own. Mm -hmm. um, and so yeah, I mean it it is it was it was a lot of hard work leading up to that. I mean working at a company where they were not all easy days, right? And we'll mm -hmm. get into some of that, but they weren't all easy days. And so I think it was my network, I, it was my relationships, of course, for them to even know to ask me if I wanted mm -hmm. to apply for this. Um, mm -hmm. But 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 I think it was a culmination of all of those things and all of the time and energy that I put in to, to building relationships with people um, across the organization. Well, I think that that's, a, that's a, a point that I want to make everyone aware of. Like Lynette, tried 
right? She stepped outside of her comfort zone. She was like, you know, I may not get this. So for all of you who are listening, you see that position opening up. You think, oh, I'm not qualified for it. I just spoke to a young lady, um, young black lady, amazing, super intelligent. She was looking at a job description and she was like, I don't know if I can do this. I don't tick all the barriers. And I know friends, you know, they, I have some, a lot of good, good white friends, males to be exact. They look at a job description and if they can do 25% of the job, they are applying. So <laughs> one thing, if they can do one thing on the job description, sometimes they, it, I mean, they, they that's, those are actually facts. Those are actually facts. There is data that supports this, that women need to see over 80% um, of the mandatory or preferred qualifications um, to apply for that job. And men, oh gosh, the average is so low. I don't even think it's worth mentioning, right? Like it's so low. And I think that in itself, we we are, um, well, one, I think companies are creating false barriers sometimes anyway, sure. right? So when you put sure. 60 requirements on a job description, like do the people in the job even do that? Or are you dreaming exactly. of a unicorn that you want, right? Exactly, so, exactly. You know, just do it, just do it, apply. Apply. I'm going to tell you Get now, if, apply. if they say on the job description can spell your name correctly and I like it, I am applying. So just know that and I want to encourage you all. So I want to, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about like our racial identity. Cause we just talked about you being a, you being both black and a woman. Mm -hmm. So talk to us a little bit how your racial identity has impacted your professional career. Do you think it's stymied opportunities or do you think it's helped you um, advance as a result of it? Well, I mean, I think, I think there's a lot of kind of rewiring or wiring that happened even before I got into the workplace that mm. allowed it to be an asset and me view it as an asset, no matter if the external audience viewed it as something that would that would hold me back or barrier. Mm. Right. And so I think my parents did an incredible job when I as raising me around knowing um, knowing who I was, being comfortable with who I was. Mm -hmm. um, and, and being aware of my skill set and my mm -hmm. area of opportunity, but being very clear about what I was what I was good at and where I what I was capable of. And so I think that prepared me for when I went into the workplace, there was going to have to be a lot of work that they would have to do to rewire how my brain was already shaped to, to think. Mm -hmm. right. And so you know, when I when I think about my my some of my earlier work experiences, and I think about working with individuals who were racist, like not mm. like coded microaggressions, like racist, blatantly racist. And I think about, oh, I remember when my mom told me about that. Like I remember when she said, you know, my mom's from Wilson, North Carolina, right? Like I remember when she told me about these things that were happening in her community. Oh, this is what that is, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, this is how I need to take this moment, breathe, determine what plan I'm gonna put in place and mm hang -hmm. up, right? Um, For sure. And so yeah, there were moments of, yeah, I remember I had one manager, again, I'm not gonna tell y'all where, but <laughs> <who was like laughs> indoors when he was upset. I mean, this was like, I was in my early, I was like barely 21 when I graduated mm -hmm. from college. like. I wasn't even 21 when I graduated from like barely, barely like 20. And this man's like uh, 30s, in his 30s, mid-30s, kicking doors, throwing tantrums. Like, I'm like, wow. oh, so this is the workplace. Like, you know, so I'm very early on, 
like realizing that, okay, one, I need to be clear about what I'm going to take and not take. And I think mm-hmm. I learned that in my twenties. And so that then helped me un- uncover what are your resources in the workplace, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. is it your manager's manager? Is it HR? Is it employee relations? Like what are those, those places? And so I think because I uncovered that, that early, I've now been able to say that it's it's not about, it is about my blackness is very important. Me being a woman is very important, but it is also about how do I utilize those resources that are available to me to make sure that I am being respected as a person, no mm. matter my intersection, because that is what my ultimate goal is for everyone is that everyone shows up and feels respected in the mm. world. And so mm. that to me is a baseline. If there's no respect, there's no Lynette. Right. Like, like mm. that is like those are the, those two things go side and side for me now. So I think now I see it as how do I leverage my my culture, my my voice, um, the things that I've learned from being from generations of people who have been who have made it through and persevered. How do I leverage yeah. all of that um, to be an asset? And I think no. those are skills that we we uniquely have um, that that we've learned from generations of, of uh, from our ancestors. So that makes so much sense. I want to I want to tell a little story, uh, and then I want to ask a follow up question. I remember growing up, I was at the basketball I was at the basketball park, uh, Robert Heights, and one of one of my neighbor, older guy. I'm not gonna say his name, but he was an older guy. He called me over. Somebody had somebody owed him money. And he was talking to the dude, and he open hand slapped him. And as soon as that happened, I ran because I just knew that that guy was going to kill him for slapping him. And and sure enough, you know, I got far away, and you know, some things happened later. But that really shaped my perspective. And this is like a very personal anecdote, but it shaped my perspective for work because respect was so deeply ingrained in me. You know, and I don't know if you read Ta-Nehisi, uh ta book about um, growing up in Baltimore. And he talks about why young black men are willing to kill over you stepping on their shoes, like why they're willing to fight. And this was so like it resonated with me so much because I've seen fights because someone stepped on their shoes. And he, he messaged it this way. If you grow up in certain areas and certain like environments that black people are prone to grow up in in America, right? Due to due to the systemic nature of our country. You don't have a lot. So the only thing that you have at your disposal is your respect. Right. And people ask like, why would you fight? Why would you turn violent? Cuz you don't own a lot of people don't own their house. They don't own the neighborhoods, the blocks that they're standing on. The only thing they own is their respect. And if that is all that you have, you're more than likely willing to do a lot to protect that because you don't have much. And when I read that, I thought about it. Like I've, I grew up seeing that, seeing people fight over respect, seeing people, you know, honestly be shot and killed over disrespect. And when I'm transitioning to the workplace, I never forget interviewing at a job. And they asked me, they said, like, what are you, like, what are some of your non-starters? What are your non-negotiables? And very quickly, I said, my first thing was, I said, I don't do disrespect. I said that, I said, like, I will respect you because, like, I grew up seeing the ramifications of disrespect. Mm -hmm. And that's all. But I told them, I said, like, I don't do that. And so I think that that's super important. 
But you said something that I wanted to expound upon. Um, you mentioned that as like you found out what resources could you find, right, to protect you. So it wasn't necessarily about like black or, or womanhood as much. It was like, you know, I knew what I wasn't going to take. So I had to find the resources. Would you care to elucidate on some of those resources? Like what, like for people who may be listening to this, who are younger coming into their very own like you, like what resources did you find or would you recommend to people to be able to reach out if they feel like they're in a place where they're being disrespected? Well, I mean, I think the first resource, and I always love to t talk about this because, you know, while everyone, you know, I know I am aging, I am not older, um, <laughs> but I think it's very interesting in that we, we the, our first resource is ourselves. Right. Yeah. I, I think people initially don't do the reflection that is necessary to determine mm. is it me or is it them? Mm. And I think that is very important because in a in a culture now where everybody wins, everyone's great, everyone is, you know, excelling and, and gets the, the medal. Right. Like you very few people lose. And so I think sometimes when you go to the workplace and you have this moment where you're not the high performer or you're not winning, people are like, oh, my God, it's the it's the system. It's the organization. It could be you. So I think like, mm. one, like, are you do you reflect on that? I think it's very now. Let me be also clear that I tell a lot of people when they come into organizations, it's not you, it's them. I'm very clear about that as well, because I think so you have to first take that stock. I think that's very important. The next thing though, I think can be depending on your company. If you trust HR, which, and, I've got, and I'm saying this cheek and tongue because it, I'm, I've been in HR for most of my life, right? But mm -hmm. I think there is a, a factor of mistrust that happens within it, sometimes within human resource, people, operations, human capital, whatever you wanna call it, organizations. But I think you have to at least try to trust the system and process that's in place mm -hmm. in order to share what your challenges are and see what type of results come out of that. I think you can't go in saying, well, I don't trust the system if you haven't even tested out the system. So mm -hmm. the first thing is like, figure out, find someone you trust, Try find a mentor, find a colleague, someone you trust and ask them, well, if you're not clear, what is the process? Um, most of it is you have a business partner or someone you can talk to first. Um, mm -hmm. Talk to them first. See if that actually manifests into a solution that is that is what you are looking for or hoping for, right? Um, mm. And then I think most companies have employee relations. Like, so if that doesn't work, you have employee relations, right? And I think try the process as it sits and, and see what the outcome is first. And so that's usually... How it how it unfolds in a, in an organization. Um, you know, the other thing I would even say before you try HR is sometimes, and I think especially right now, um, you know, I think we 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 all are clear about what's happening in in our in our world, in our country, in our cities, in our neighborhoods right now. Um, but empathy is something that I think people are really trying to upskill in. And I would say if you have a problem, try talking to your manager. Like mm. try talking to that person that is impacting you first. You know, Robert, you said at the very beginning, you said something about people going around you to talk to your manager when they had Ooh. a problem with you. Come on. And believe me, I've had that happen in my career too. But I think one of the things that we forget is like, what does it feel like to be, we know what it feels like to be on the end of that or to be the receiver of that. 
So, but when you're doing it and you don't even give that person the benefit of the doubt or try to talk to your manager, mm -hmm. we are actually activating those same systems, right? And so mm -hmm. it's like, try to talk to them, see what they say, and then go to HR and then go to employee relations, right? So like take the steps, but I think sometimes it is, it is easier to say, that's just not going to work. I'm not going to try. Um, mm -hmm. But also there is, and I do, I always like to talk about the, the other side of that coin. If you know this person has been giving you evidence of not wanting to solve problems and have mm -hmm. conversations that are productive, then don't even waste your energy, right? But, right. but like, have that evidence before you go around that person, right? So no, that's I, real. Give it a try. So I like to talk on both sides of that because I think it's very important that there's not one answer to any of this. Um, mm. And you have to try stuff and you have to learn mistakes from things. I've tried every route, believe me, in my career, because I have been faced with many, many situations uh, in my mm. time. So. I can imagine. I can imagine. Let's speak. So you, you talk about how you've been faced with some situations. One yeah. thing that we talk about on this podcast um, is microaggressions. And we yeah. know that microaggressions are real, yes. but we know that they may not always be immediately apparent to others. And I don't know, you know, Lynette, I don't know. I'm not going to judge you, but I don't know if you watch Blackish. Do you watch Blackish? I do. I, I know you do. I knew you do. <laughs> so, so, Bo, one thing, when I always talk about microaggressions, and I know you speak the language because you work in this space, but it, it, I think particularly, specifically back to Bo, when she was a doctor and she was at the, the same, she was at the hospital and the, the white male, you know what I'm talking about? The white male doctor's like, oh, you went to, uh, what is UCLA? You know what I mean? You went to USC. Some of her medical school is a really good school. And he said that like he was shocked that she went to it. And she was telling them people, hey, this is a microaggression. Like I feel attacked. Um, and so I always use that example. Um, but can you share maybe your most memorable or painful microaggression that you experienced and how did you address it? You know, I was really trying to, to think about this because I, I know whether it be, and I'll, I'll say microaggressions like people using angry or intimidating as language, mm -hmm. as coded language instead of real feedback, um, that's a microaggression. I think people uh, assuming that as a black person or one of the few black people in a room, you always have to be the person to speak. I think that's a microaggression because that goes against your performance reviews. I think exactly. that there is a, um, there have been times where, you know, people, you know, the, the simple things like people, not even, and I'm not, I'm sorry, let me not even say simple. The things that like people touching your hair, asking to touch mm. your hair, people, mm. you know, um, looking to you when you're talking. I remember in college, we're in a, a black history, some some course I was taking around black history, African-American history, but there were only like two African-Americans in the class. And it was like, they're, you know, they talk about slavery, Lynette. And I'm like, I was a slave. I don't. I don't know my ancestors, but not me. Um. So you know, it is. I think all of those things. Um. And and I think I understand why we call them microaggressions. But I think you know these are things that impact and continue to perpetuate the broken and equitable systems that we have. So let's go back to using angry in someone's performance review. It, it's so funny. I actually had, when I when I read this in one of my performance reviews, so this was actually put in one of my performance reviews. Mm. And and I remember, I remember reading it 
and setting up a meeting with my manager right after. Mm, immediately. immediately. You know, tell me what you meant by angry. You know, I, I mean, I'm, I'm saying it just like this. Please tell me what you meant by angry. I think it will help me unpack, you know, how you want me to move forward. And <laughs> he gives me this one example in a meeting where I had my arms crossed um, in the meeting. Mm -hmm. And I said, oh, wow. I said, okay. I said, so that's interesting to know how you perceive that situation. I said, but because we were in a virtual environment, so he was in one location in another uh, state, I was in another. I said, did you know that our air condition runs at 60 degrees mm. in this room? Mm. Did you know that I was cold and didn't have a jacket that day? And the reason that my arms were crossed is because I was so cold that I was trying to get some body heat uh, to, so that I would not be shivering in the meeting. Exactly. And he was like, oh, well, I, I think I have other examples. Oh, well, please All right, share share those other. Could not give me another example, right? Pray tell. Uh, pray tell. And so, you know, that was that was a moment for me, not only as something I could use now in my work, because I can give that example of like your one momentary viewpoint or perception of something does not equal reality because people right. like that perception is reality line. I'm like, no, no, no. Your perception is your reality. Exactly. That is not the reality of every single thing that is happening around you. Um, and, and so not only now can I use that case when I'm doing, you know, my work, but uh -huh. it, was, it was a moment for me to communicate to him that as a black woman, there's a lot for me to be angry about in the work the mm -hmm. murders of black people walking down the street in their homes doing everyday human things that they should be able to do um that people our black people are underpaid and overqualified so there's mm -hmm. a lot for me to be angry about i don't come to work angry i don't expel that energy at work i said so if you perceive a situation where you believe i may be angry based off of the biases that you have collected over time, then we mm -hmm. should have a conversation about that. I said, but I'm never angry at work. So that should be our baseline is I'm never angry at work. Now we can talk about other things that might describe my behaviors, but angry is not one of them. Mm -hmm. and, and I just really remember the look on his face being like, what is happening right now? And, and we, you know, and, and it just being a moment of like, okay, this is, this is where we are. This is where we are. And that it is now, it is now on me another burden that I have to carry to make sure that people are clear about my intentions and what is mm -hmm. happening, my moves and my body language that is so basic as like covering my arms and that you, you perceiving that to be something other than what it is. And so, you know, there's so many little moments that that to your point add up. But I think that the reality for me is that those moments are always teachable moments. And, mm. and because I have found my voice and I'm comfortable using my voice, and again, to speak on the other side, I know everyone is not, I use it and I, mm -hmm. and I challenge and I ask people questions and I ask them, you know, do I need to pull out the feelings chart for you so you can find new words? Like, like let mm. me help you really dig into what those emotions truly are. Is it that you felt like I left you hanging in the meeting and I wasn't speaking up in the way that you thought added value? Let's talk about that. Right. Like, like there are a lot of ways for us to dig deeper than these kind of things that we try to categorize high level for people. Mm, mm. Well, I, I'm, you know, you can see me. I'm sitting here rocking because 
like that resonates with me. You know, I, I worked at, and you know me, you know what I mean? We, we've known each other for years. I think you know my personality. I've seen you. Uh, I, I've been out with you. So people consider me, I would imagine like a little vivacious type of person, yes. you know, energetic. And, and it wasn't until I, you know, I've always worked at places where I was, you know, predominantly the only black male. That's just been my career trajectory. But it wasn't until I, I transitioned to this new place, and I'm going to leave the, the organization name out, but that I, I was called the angry black man. And like that was so difficult for me to grapple with. And, um, and I had to have that very same conversation and, and share with them like, there's very little that you can do to make me angry at work because like, like number one, I don't expend that amount of energy. Like I don't care enough for you to make me that angry, just to be very honest. Right. Like there are so many other things that I care about, you know, like my daughters, my daughters, when they do things like they say, daddy, are you mad at me? And I say, no, baby, like I'm just disappointed in your actions. Right. So like these are my daughters who I could should get mad at. You know what I mean? So and I don't get mad at them. So like I it, I had to have that same conversation in terms of like, let's reframe and think about like what action took place. And like just because I spoke passionately about an issue does not make me angry as much as it makes me um, very engaged in this topic. Right. So like having that conversation, checking body language and stuff, that's very interesting that you bring that up, because I think that is something that people who look like us experience across the board. Right. So I want to you you mentioned something about when you were the only uh, one of the few people of color in your black history, African-American <laughs> studies class. And I know you being who you are in the places, the rooms that you've been in, like that wasn't the only time. So. How many times, you know, have you been the only person of color or the only woman of color in the office? And how did you navigate that? Because a lot of our listeners are in that same place, right? So give us an example yeah. about how you navigate and what it looked like. You, you know, I, it's, it's really interesting. And I think, you know, sometimes I like to say it's not just the in, in the workplace, because I, I could be in a workplace and to the point that we made where at different levels, there are people of color, but as you get more senior, of course the data shows us there are very fewer people of color, especially black people, black women, as you get more senior um, in levels. And I mean, I just remember as simple as sitting at a manager table where mm. every other peer around me is, is white. And mm. you know, we're talking about, we're talking about, we're calibrating people for performance reviews. And I have to, again, unpack language. Unpack coded language around people, right? And, Hello. and not just people of color. I mean, all people, but like, again, like it is, it is those moments where I have two choices. I, I always, I always think about what are my two choices. Mm -hmm. My two choices are I'm going to use my voice and hopefully there's something that's going to change. Whether mm. it be the way we do something, that person's outcome of their, um, whatever that is, like, review score, feedback, whatever that is, um, the something is going to be uncovered, some bias is going to be uncovered, or I'm going to be quiet because I need to protect myself, my wellness in some way, um, my job in some way. Um, I, I always say, Lynette, these are your two choices for the day, mm -hmm. for this moment. And, and in that moment, then I get to choose and the choice is not put upon me, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's always very important, especially as you talk about 
our our ancestry and our history like that I feel like I have a choice. And so for me, that is how I operate in these spaces is like, Lynette, what are your choices? And then mm-hmm. choose that choice that feels good for you in this moment. And right. so in most moments, it's me using my voice because I'm like, I don't care. Like whatever happens, happens. Like, right. I got right. like God's got me. Like it's not, exactly. not, a problem, not a check. God's got me. So whatever happens, happens. So that's where I'm leaning 90% of the time. Um, but sometimes I don't feel safe. I don't feel psychologically mm. safe. I don't know, you know, even though I, I'll take the risk, I don't feel safe doing it. And yes. so there are moments where I'm just like, okay, my choice today is to follow up in a different way or to go about this in a different way other than being the voice in the room. So I think having choices is very important. Mm-hmm. Um, I think building my brand outside of those difficult moments has also been something that I've worked on, right? So that people know Lynette just doesn't say what's on her mind when she gets into these meetings behind closed doors. You see that all the time, every interaction, you know, whether we're in front of everyone, whether we're having a one-on-one conversation, you know, I am transparent, honest, I'm going to say it like it is. So it's not a surprise when we get in that room when I'm the only one, right? Um, And so- Setting up that so that, and again, it's the work, it's the burden, right? Of like, you know, how am I setting myself up so that and building these relationships so that I can say the thing, so that I can, you know, tell people when we are acting in a way that is not driving towards equity, right? So, right. so those are, you know, those are some of the tactics that I try to employ um, while I'm in the space and, and before I get into the space. Mm, that's... That's so real. Uh, my friend, Kurt, Kurt from D.C., good brother, always 10 toes down with me. He he has this saying, he said, oh, I never miss my moment. Like that's, he prides itself mm. on, on, on never missing his moment. And it makes me think about, um, I was at an organization and we were in Montgomery, Alabama, Lynette. We were in Montgomery. We had just toured, um, mm, I just toured EJI's Equal Justice, uh, their Lynching Memorial. And like, this is what it looks like. There are maybe about 300 plus of us um, across the organization and nine, there were nine black men across that 300 plus. Mm. And i never forget, we went, to the, we went to the memorial and the first thing we did, the very first thing we did was go look where we were from and see if our family's names. Because mm. have you been to the memorial mm. in there? Have you seen it? I've not been to the memorial. Oh. So, so it's pillars all over. Yeah. And it's like yeah. every county in America, right? Yeah. And the first thing we did was go to where we were from and see if our family names were represented. And, um, you know, it's a solemn place. So like us and, and this, I don't know if people understand. Like I think black men particularly have been conditioned to like always be strong. You know what I mean? And so Chris, Chris Bruce, my brother, I love him to death. Um, we looked at each other and we were crying. And it's something to see like black men crying together because it's just like, it, it hasn't happened a lot in my life, right? And so he and I were just exceptionally emotional. We were crying. And i never forget the organization uh, that we were part of after we left that memorial that, that deeply like, touching and emotive experience, like the organization planned a dinner. Organization planned a dinner and we went to we went to eat and people and, and like people were dancing, partying and playing. 
And like we were in the stake of like deep shock. And so it hurt. And so like we had to use our voice and it was a, it was at a convening and we pulled everyone together. Um, nine of us got on stage and we spoke about the mm. mass exodus of black women from senior level positions. We spoke about the fact that this organization has um, um, branches all across America and only like literally 55 branches and only four of them were headed by people of color, particularly black people at you know at that time we spoke about like that we were stuck in like support level roles and right and so amazingly enough they listened and like we got up there we had we had to make that that decision you made that choice like do we say this or do we not do we do we play it safe but we got up there and we stated it and now they have they develop a pipeline for mm -hmm. black people right to move them into senior level executive positions they've um They've created um, roles where you you have to when they hire senior level positions you have to choose people from this pipeline and if you don't you have to justify strongly just strong justifications why it hasn't so like we were able to create some real change and I think one of the most important impactful things you talked about payment black people now they are offering paid internships right because we know that we can't afford to work for free. That's and right. one of the ways that people join this organization, be a part of is do internships. And so like we were able to knock down some systemic barriers that existed, but it would never would have happened if we had not used our voice. So that's one of the things that we're so, we're so proud of. That's powerful. I, I want to, I want to try and move us on real quick in, in transition. Like you work at Goldman, Goldman Sachs. And one thing we talk about some of the things that, uh, the, the pipeline we just talked about, but Goldman has set some of the most aggressive and specific goals amongst big banks requiring that more black, Latino, and female professionals be interviewed and hired for jobs at the bank. Um, but you know, the individual said that like the, the banks is not increasing diversity fast enough, especially at the upper echelon. So what can companies do to hire more diverse staff and ensure that the environment is conducive to retaining them? Because it's not just hiring, you got to retain people. Yeah. So Robert, I, I love I love this question. And just to give a little color, right? Like I work now in, in finance, I worked before in tech, I uh, worked before that in education, right? And in all of these places, the same thing, right? Like this is the same data. It is the mm -hmm. same, um, you know, results that have been happening over time. And Here's, here's where I'm excited and just oh, like just excited about what I am seeing at Goldman right now is mm -hmm. that for a very long time, I believe Goldman was not as vocal about mm. the things that they were doing. And now, you know, sharing to be an example and a model for, 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 for how we want to share and talk about this, I think is bold. I think it's incredible. I think it's, 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 it's compelling. I think now it really is putting that into place in terms, mm. right? Because you know, I, I think it's it's so important for people to not just to publicly make a statement, but mm -hmm. to privately. And when I say privately, behind the doors when everyone goes to work, those actions are playing out. And so, right. and so I would say that the actions are playing out, right? Like I think about how we're holding leaders accountable. How, yeah. we are, how we are building a structure in order to not only talk about this on a consistent basis, mm -hmm. but at some of the levels where decisions are made around, um, all the decisions are made around budget, around mm -hmm. you, mm -hmm. know, you know roles, around all of those, 
that those most senior leaders are at the table hearing what is happening in the workplace. And I think setting up that structure and system where it is consistent, mm-hmm. it is um, clear what we're talking about and what you're signing up to do um, and how we are holding you accountable. Those are very important things. And I think something that is, you know, that I've seen over this past year that I'm just proud to be a part of um, in any way. And, you know, and so your, your other question about retaining people. So that's how we're thinking about the numbers, right? How are we going to shift the numbers where we know inherently um, we, we have to close the gap, right? Like, like right. we need to close the gap, right? And, and so that means looking at your pipeline. That means, you know, ensuring that your pipeline is robust, not just looking mm-hmm. at what you have, but how are you going to make that pipeline more robust, right? Um, exactly. And how are you going to do that with the programming that you do internally? how you partner externally, all of that matters, right? Um, and, and I think we have a plan in place for all of that. And then and then the everyday experiences of people, which is the mm. most important thing, right? Right, because right. Especially, I was just sharing this with someone the other day, especially in the Black community, this is how it goes. Company A offers you a job. First thing you do is look in your, your contact, look on your LinkedIn. Who works there? Who works there? Who what works is it there? like? let me call up so-and-so or get my friend to connect me to so-and-so so I can ask them, what is it like to work there? Exactly. That, is, that is before you accept that offer. That For is sure. what you're doing. You're doing research. You're doing recon about like, what is it like to work there? And mm-hmm. that is where, you know, this conversation I had the other day was pointed around is like, you can build a pipeline all day. But we're wasting everyone's time if the experiences are not changing for people. In Hello. Time, right? Because all their, their friends are going to do is call and say, what's it like? And they're going to say, eh. They're going to say, I don't know. I don't I don't know if you want to do it. Um, this ain't it. We're going to say, this ain't it. I'm looking for help, <laughs> right? Like, like, right. That, like, that's not the message you want because then you've wasted all this time, you know, trying to find this talent, sourcing the talent, interviewing the talent. And ultimately, they're going to decline because they're going to be like, that's not it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so so how we are working with managers to build, you know, different levels of emotional intelligence, different levels of coaching, giving feedback um, in ways that are action-oriented, thinking about how we are allowing people to see their, themselves mirrored and leaders, um, senior leaders. And if they're not there, then how do we have those people serving as active allies um, and sponsors for people, right? Um, Mm -hmm. That's all work that is happening at an incredible pace and rate. Um, And and what I am excited to be a part of, um, because that is the work that allows your internal message to match your internal message. Um, and actions. And so, and so that, that's, you know, that's how we're doing it. We, we've been bold and we are not taking our foot off the pedal and, you know, there's an investment, um, that is being made and in all ways, always, um, to, to, to try to not even to try to ensure that we are making progress. That makes so that makes a lot of sense. And I think that like you just said it, I tell my friends, I just had three conversations this week, people asking me about the culture of the company. And you know, I was I was clear with them because you want to make sure you're setting people right. up for success. Right. You got to do and, that. And let's talk I, about this. We're on the Black Work Experience podcast. There, black people are so talented and have a lot of options. And and I mm-hmm. think that there is that is the other side of the coin is that what I tell people is don't take something for a check. 
Make sure that it is the thing that will take care of your mental and emotional wellness more than just the dollars. Because if you have the money, but you are depressed every day, that's not going to do it for you. Listen to me, Lynette. I worked at an organization that I had to seek counsel. Mm. Like I, ha- I like I had to go to counseling because it was so damaging to my mental and emotional health that I would. I remember one time I picked my daughters up and I was sitting in the car with them and I was so upset that I was just sitting in the car crying. And my daughter, my five years old, she wiped my tears and she said, "God." Bless my daddy. That's the only prayer she knew. You know, and I said, when that happened, I said, you know, I got to get out of here because I can't be a good husband to my wife. I can't be a good father to my kids because this is impacting me negatively. Let's talk a little bit about like allies because, you know, you're working at an organization, you're working at a company um, and you need allies, right? You talked about the resources earlier. And I think one of the resources that people need is allies at organizations. People, when things happen, they can talk to, they can check their biases, they can get feedback. So have you tell us about an unexpected ally you may have had who and how did this colleague or professor show up for you? You know, this was um this was in a role where I, I just had my manager was terrible. I mean, like this manager was did not know how to give feedback. This manager was promoted mm. time and time again, even after getting feedback that they were not a quality manager. And then this manager went out on maternity leave and, mm. and their peers stepped in as my manager. And I remember sharing my side because of course my manager had already shared her side of, of the situation with him. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he was like, what? <laughs> like I remember him literally looking at me like, what? Like, like, are you like, I've never even heard even part of this version of the story, but in the story you're telling me, I've heard that version from her. Right. So now he's like, mm-hmm. oh, so I, I don't feel like I've gotten the whole situation. And so exactly. Like, so what do you want me to do? I mean, literally, that was his first question. He was like, well, what do you want me? To? He's like, I'm your manager now. What do you want me to do while mm. this person is gone? And so literally having him help me brainstorm and think about solutions and him even creating an opportunity for me to shift to another part within the organization, but like being managed under him, like moving all of these pieces so that Mm. I would no longer have to be susceptible to that type of behavior was allyship in action. I wasn't just like, oh, I'm here. I put an ally badge on my shoulder. Like, I'm an ally. Like, it was like, no, no, no. What do you need for me to show you that I'm with you in this mm-hmm. moment? And then for him to actually follow through and make it happen. Like, I can't be super specific about the situation because it'll, it'll right. tell a lot yeah. about everything. But, but, I mean, like, he made things happen. I mean, from... You know, like from just like just moving mountains to make sure that I was going to be set up for success. And to me, mm-hmm. and he put himself on the line because it could have been where he said, I don't know if when that story is true. So I don't know if I should, if I put my brand on the line to be like, is this right? Like, is it her? Is it the other person? But he trusted me. He trusted my story. He trusted that I was giving him a balanced opinion and perspective of what was happening. And he mm-hmm. took the risk to put his brand on the line for me. And that to me is true allyship where you are willing to lose something for someone else and it is okay. 
And and I think yeah. that is where we're getting a little conflated with this term allyship, especially right now. And I want to be mm-hmm. clear that because you put something on Instagram, it doesn't make you an ally, right? Well, like you you have to be very active about that and be clear about what are you giving up in order them. And sometimes it is your brand. Sometimes it's your followers. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's your, mm-hmm. because you make a statement. But are you doing that because you know you might lose something to help others gain? Or are you doing it because it's a PR tactic? And I think that is is what's important. And so he showed that moment. And I think that was, for me, how I measure every ally now. Mm. Because I have a solid example of what it looks like um, in practice. Um, And, and, you know, and I think allyship is different than sponsorship and mentorship, right? But I think that Mm -hmm. is a moment where I was like, oh, this does exist. Right. Like, like mm-hmm. there are people out here who who really do get it and care and will help others, um, even if it means that something does not work out for them or there is something that they may lose in this moment. Yeah, no, that that is deep. That is that is deep. Uh, I'm going to reflect on if I have an ally to that extent. Mm-hmm. I, I, I've I had a few situations, but that that makes me want to be a little bit more introspective about who and what I consider allies mm-hmm. now in the work. Thank you for setting that bar. We're getting ready to close, but we people want to know. I want to know. We we like to have this, this podcast set up in a way, designed in a way that people learn and they take something from it. So what parting words would you leave with Black people who come behind you, right? Who? So what words of advice do you have for, for Black people who are pursuing C-suite positions, who are climbing the ladder of leadership, what what would you want to leave with them? You know, I, a lot, especially right now. But you you said something about climbing the ladder, and I want to be. I, I do want to talk about that because I think, especially right now, with um, everything happening around Black Lives and the value of Black Lives and COVID and everything, that this climb is dangerous. Mm. And and I. I I want to be clear about why I'm saying that because I do think someone could say, well, Lynette, look at your career. Like, you know, you've gone from this level to this level. Yeah, but it it hasn't been because I've been actively putting energy into climbing a level. It's because I've been actively putting energy and caring for people and building on my skill set to be better than what I was before. And Mm. that shows up in a way where someone gives me an opportunity to have a greater impact. And that is then how that happens. That kind of acceleration has happened. Um, but I don't actively sit around and say, oh, in a year, I need to be at this level. In two years, I need to be at this level. And then I need to be on this C-suite and this board at this level at this time, because that is a dangerous kind of way to mess with your mental wellness and your emotional wellness, um, mm. because it's not all on your actions. And I think that's the important thing that I want to leave is that it's not all just because you work 80 hours a week that you're going to get that promotion, right? Come on. It is It is because your name comes up in that room because you had access and proximity to a leader making the decision and you have some evidence of your work speaking to it, but it's not because of those 80 hours. It could have been that one thing you did, those two things that you did that left an impression on that leader to speak about you in that room where that promotion is happening. And so I want to be clear for people that like it's not – how hard or 
how much more energy you exert over the person next to you. It's about who do you have in your executive cabinet and your sponsors that can speak to your brand and who you are when those decisions are being made. And so this climb, we have to get rid of the climb. We, we have to be able to show up in a well-rounded way for our families, for our friends, for ourselves, um, and, and take our mental health seriously. When you are in these situations where you feel like um, you, you just can't solve for anything, you feel helpless, you feel hopeless, you feel all of those things, be able to identify where you need to get help. Um, and, mm -hmm. and sometimes recognize that it's because of this hustle that in these expectations that you've placed for yourself that are predicated on other people's decisions that are mm -hmm. to where your mind is in this at this time. And so I, I just really want people to get rid of this notion of what the climb is. Um, mm. really start to think about how do I live out the life that I'm here to live and my purpose and do it in a way that is aligned to my wellness and me being here for a long time um, to do this hard sure. work. Absolutely. We have one more question and we're going to end this. But you said something that I really want you to help people understand. Can you share with our listeners what an executive cabinet is? Because you know, I was blessed someone introduced this topic to me. And I have people, I, I very rarely make professional decisions without talking to them. But can you very briefly give our listeners and every, what is an executive cabinet? Yeah, so my executive cabinet and is filled with people, whether they be sponsors, mentors, um, people who I admire and respect their careers, um, their, their values model mine. And it's a cabinet of about seven people where I don't make mm -hmm. any decisions without talking to those people. I don't, I don't move left. I don't move right. If I have a bad day at work and I'm about to make maybe a rash decision, I am talking to someone in that cabinet. Um, if there is a promotion or a new opportunity, I'm talking to someone in that cabinet. Um, there, those are a set group of people, and it's and let me be clear, it's not just my circle of friends. It, this is a mm -hmm. specific group of people who have modeled and mirrored things that I want to emulate in my career and life, and those are the people that I reach out to. I remember one of them is a former manager that I had while I was at Teach for America. He is in that mm -hmm. cabinet. Like I don't make a move without mentioning, oh hey, this is happening. And he's like good move. Nah, like, you know, like that is, that is like, he, he will give me a pulse check. Right. Um, mm -hmm, I mm -hmm. have my sister in my cabinet where like, she has been through many of the same experiences that I have. And we can talk about all of the pros and cons about she is, and I do not make a move. I mean, I don't even think I buy a piece of clothes. Like I don't make a move without her. Like she is in the cabinet. Right. Like, so those mm -hmm. are the people that are like there to help you make decisions and people who have the strengths that you don't have. My executive mm -hmm. cabinet is made up of people who are very different than I am because they help me think about things in ways that I wouldn't. And it's important mm. that's where I think it's different from your circle of friends because usually your friends are very like you and you all have a lot of commonalities and things like that. But the executive cabinet is very different. I have white people mm. in my cabinet. I have me too. You, know, uh, you know other people of color, right? Other than black, right? So like the executive cabinet is is made up of a diverse community of people. Um, who help me protect myself from myself. Um, that makes a lot of sense. Important. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I hope our people re grabbed on to that. Our very last question before we get out of here, if you could broadcast a message to white allies, 
who want to step up and help in this time, what would you say to them? I would say to do some reflection on if you are using your position of power as a bridge or as a barrier to people. Mm. That's right. That's reflect on it, reflect on it. And if you're using it as a bridge, I commend you. And I say, make sure that you're willing to, once you help people get over that bridge, that you continue to help people get over that bridge and that you're actively sometimes going to the other side of that bridge to pull people across so they know it's safe. Um, and if you're a barrier, then you're not an ally. And, and mm. it's very clear that you're not an ally if you're a barrier. Mm. Mm. Lynette Barksdale, this has been amazing. I want to say thank you so much for joining the podcast. Thank you for dropping these gems. I know that the listeners are going to love this. They're going to send me messages. Um, we're in 15 different countries. We've been able to grow expansively. And it's because amazing people like you sign on to the podcast. You all share your gems, you share your experiences and your story. So from the very bottom of my heart, I want to say thank you for joining Black Work Experience Podcast. And I look forward to staying connected with you. And hopefully I'm going to add you to my executive cabinet because I need all the help I can get. You heard Absolutely. me? Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Lynette. Have a good day. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Black Work Experience Podcast. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us. If you would like to hear more, follow us on IG at BWEP. We're also on Twitter at BWE Podcast. Black Work Experience is hosted and produced by me, Robert Stevens. Our show is mixed by strategic communication specialist, Sarah Daggett. Find out more about her amazing work at DaggettConsultingLLC.com. That's Daggett, D-A-G-G-E-T-T, consultingllc.com. Our theme music was composed by Cameron Wright. If you would like to contribute to Mail Time, please submit your Mail Times on our IG at BWE Pod. You can also DM us on Twitter at BWE Podcast or via email at blackworkexperiencepod at gmail.com. Domino, Domino, only spot a few blacks I had to. Domino, Domino, only spot a few blacks I had to.